slumbering, was so asleep spiritually, right, that it needed a real uh, man of prayer, man of miracles, man of faith to wake them up. And this is what we see in St. John's life, right? Because what strikes you is that, you know, in mostly in lives of saints, we see how people, uh, the, the, the ones who are dedicated to God, they go out, go out and uh, seek holiness in seclusion or in the monastery or in a life, but that is not well known, right? I mean, they are afterwards revealed and afterwards venerated and, and, venerated and so forth. But with St. John, we see that right from the beginning of his ministry, in Kronstadt uh, Cathedral of St. Andrew, suddenly he receives these gifts from God, right? That he becomes an instantly a magnet for the people. He becomes a person to whom people are attracted. And it, this was his calling. He wasn't escaping it, because many fathers, you will see, they will escape, they'll go somewhere, move from one place to another, and so forth. <laughs> Not with him. And that's what makes, him, uh, uh, makes us understand that his was a prophetic calling, because that's what the prophets did as well. They were there to make, to shake up, to really make an impression on people. Not to struggle in isolation, not to struggle on their own, but to really make an impression on the people. So we see that sometimes they would even do um, uh, almost outlandish things. And Jeremiah would go naked sometimes. So then some uh, um, uh, Ageus would, oh, Hosea, sorry, the prophet, <laughs> he would marry Harlot. And, and something that was almost scandalizing, something that would attract people, people's attention. And there was always something to explain about what, why they were doing this, right? Uh, prophet Elias, for example. In fact, Prophet Elias never prophesied anything. Uh, in writing, we don't have a book of Prophet Elias. No, his life was a life of a prophet and prophecy well, of, of our Savior's coming. But his life was so much of impressing on people by his life, by his word, by his you know, fiery fire coming down from heaven and himself going up in chariot, of impressing on people that something was wrong and they have to wake up from their sleep. This is what we see in St. John of Kronstadt that he comes in a certain time of the history of the church, in certain parts of uh, the, 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 the earth, certain, in certain church, with two certain people, not only to that people, to the Russian people, but to all the Orthodox people, to impress on them something, something that was going wrong, and he had to wake them up by his word, by his life, by his existence. So we ask ourselves, what is it that... All the prophets, and especially St. John uh, of Kronstadt, what is it that he did? What was wrong and what he tried to correct with the calling of God? And one comes to a conclusion while reading the whole of, of his life, and especially not only his life about him, but his writings, My Life in Christ, right? What we can, at least for me, the impression clearly from, from uh, reading about St. John is that he came to impress on the people that we have a living God, that our faith is living. It's not an abstraction. It's not a set of conceptions. It's, it's not a set of simply isolated dogmas. It's not a mental activity. That God of Christians is a living God. And if you look at the lives of the prophets, that's all they tried to do. Wherever prophets were sent not to people who did not believe, but to people that really believed wrongly, right? People that had uh, sort of 
gone astray into the worldly thinking about our religion, our faith. Not understanding that our religion, there's nothing like our faith. There's nothing like our religion. There are many religions that are understood that they, yes, they are faith, but they have nothing to do to the true religion because the different difference from our religion to the others is that we have a living God. And living God needs relationship. He's seeking a relationship with us. It's not of us working out salvation autonomously, independently, sort of as, as, a, as a set of, following a set of uh, uh, rules, and that is our salvation. No. Our Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's, a, it's, a, it's about having a real relationship with your creator, living creator. Not abstraction, not abstract sets of ideas, but a living creator. It, it says many times, the, especially in the sermon that, that uh, um, Father Philosopher Ornatsky, last, almost last chapter, gave on Father, at the Father, Father John's, St. John's funeral, was that for him, uh, the faith was not a mental activity. It was life. Because he knew that, uh, and he preached and he lived, uh, to show us that uh, Christianity is a religion of a living relationship with God. Right? And all the prophets did that. Especially all, what comes to mind is Prophet Elias. And he, how much he showed to the people that ours is a living God. He even went, uh, went and went, uh, made a, a, not a, I would say that, to, to, to show people livingly that we have a living God. He offered to those, uh, the, the priests of shame of Baal, to, for them to pray to the, to the false God, that is a non-existent God or demons, and for him to pray and let's see who is the living God. And how our Savior responded by showing the living power of fire coming down and, and uh, consuming the, the, the offering, right? That is what St. John did for, for, for his age as well. By his life and by his dedication and by his every breath, every day of his, of his life, he showed that for Christians, Christianity and life is a, a relationship. A relationship with God. And it should be noted, it should be seen, it should be uh, tangible in our lives that we have a relationship with God. Just as it is easily noticeable when somebody, and fathers bring this example, not I, when somebody is in love, right? When somebody has another person in his or her life, right? It's noticeable, right? A person does things for the sake of love. That everything that a person does, it's because he cares or she cares, and there's somebody with, whose relationship is very dear to him, right? As opposed to somebody who has no love for anybody. And yes, he does things. He wants to perfect himself. He has his goals in life, this and that. But it's instantly noticeable that that person has an autonomous uh, life to himself, and he does things for himself, as opposed to somebody who is truly loves and cares and has uh, that relationship, the defining aspect of his life. That's what Christianity is about. That the person who should be in our lives is Christ. And our keeping of commandments, our coming to the church, our partaking of the mystery, mysteries, our, everything that we do is about developing, cultivating this relationship. If that is not how we understand Christianity, then we are in trouble. And that's where 
the world always tries to drag the church, right? To make out of Christianity not a living faith of a relationship with God, but a, you know, a, a <coughs> collection of dogmas and rules and commandments that one has to keep and uh, go on like that in life, right? And that is always the, the deadly trap from the world, right? To make Christianity worldly, to make it a philosophical system, right? Mm -hmm. And that is where the church at that time was. In our time as well, the world orthodoxy, that's where it is. But at that time, that's where the church was. The, the plight of the church that was in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was, was terrible because after the fall of Byzantium, uh, the, the West encroached more and more with its ideas, with its uh, seminaries, with its, uh, with its missionaries to impose their way of seeing God, right? And their way of seeing the faith. And uh, alas, many times, uh, throughout, not many times, generation after generation, things were adopted in thinking, in way of doing things by in the Orthodox churches, both in the Slavic lands and in uh, uh, Greek lands, where... It, it, it was not what the fathers had taught us. It was not what the fathers had taught us what the faith is about. What was missing or was starting to be missed was that understanding that Christianity, true Christianity, <coughs> is a faith in living God and a Christian way of life is cultivation of this relationship with God. So one may ask, so what, what was it that was wrong? What, I mean, we understand, I described these symptoms, but where was the root? There was something went wrong that uh, the, the produced this kind of a, a misunderstanding about what Christian life is. And um, something that is clear, clear if you look at the history of the church throughout those three or four centuries of where it was at the time of when, you know, Byzantium was still, still there uh, until we reached the, the 20th century, was that the very understanding of what is the uh, dogmatic, <coughs> theologically, point of Christian life had been almost forgotten. And what is that point of Christian life? Deification. Not simply becoming better humans, not simply becoming more moral humans, not simply attaining to certain human uh, goals, you know, laudable and spiritual, but deification, that is, becoming God by grace. Total immersion in our Savior, and our Savior dwelling in us. That is the point of Christian life. That is the goal of Christian life. That is what God became man for, that so that men could participate in God. And that is what we see in St. John of Croson constantly. The word deification is used by him constantly in the life of Christ, in my life in Christ. Something that you don't see in other writers. Something that is very vague in other writers. Even before St. John of Croson, St. Ignatius Branchaninov, in his writings many times, explains the plight of, of, the, of Orthodox schools and monasteries and generally of the state of the church at that time which is disastrous and you understand why because the very very foundational understanding of what we are what are we here for what is the point of it all had been forgotten yes we say ah, the goal is salvation right but what is actually means 
was not understood that salvation means actually to be deified of God dwelling in humans like the saints have attained to. That is what was not understood and that is what produced in the life of the church that distortion. And what is this distortion that I'm talking about? If uh, the, the point of Christian life is misunderstood, that is, that it is deification, right? Then everything that we do becomes, has a different taint, has a different color about it. If salvation means us autonomously, independently, sort of finding a, a, a life, lifeboat and sitting on there, and that is salvation, then the relationship with God will not develop. The relationship, the living relationship of which I was talking about, will not be there. That is the problem with what, changing one little thing in the faith of the fathers. And the, not only the faith, but the practice itself goes away and disappears. That was the problem, beloved Christians, why uh, what, that throughout the Orthodox lands, that the whole uh, of the Orthodoxy was suffering from misunderstanding of what is the real point of life and how we get there. So, if deification is our point in life, and that is what we should seek and where we are going, then, as I, as I said, the cultivation of this relationship with God is what defines our life. But, if deification is not the the point of our life, and our life, our salvation is understood in other terms of becoming better human or becoming more spiritual, whatever, then this relation, the cultivation of this relationship is not <coughs> what defines our life. It's something else. It's uh, simply, uh, uh, it's becoming better humans. And that is not what we are called for. Saints didn't simply become better humans. They became gods upon earth. Gods by grace. So just to explain where this uh, lack of understanding about uh, the relationship with God leads to, uh, one, one has to simply look where did West go to when it left uh, the concept of deification. Something that took over Western theological schools as soon as they left the notion of what def that deification of union, true union with God is, the, uh, the point of Christian life, is that something called nominalism took over. What is this nominalism? Nominalism is uh, an idea, a teaching, that the knowledge of God that we have is not really connected with the reality, divine reality. That what we know about God, the knowledge that we have about him through mysteries, through prayer, through scriptures, through dogmas, all that, is not really tangibly connected with the re divine reality, but rather it's something that exists in our mind, in our uh, brains only. This was the idea that took over the Western church. All the universities were teaching this. All the uh, big schools of theology in the West were teaching this. The founder of it is somebody called William of Ockham, right? And if you have heard of Ockham's razor, uh, look, look it up. It, it's interesting. Actually, what is the name? William of Ockham. O-C-C-A-M. But anyways, that what and this idea, which started in the West, of, of because of its lack of understanding of the occasion, was also taking over the Orthodox theology. So one reads many different 
writers in the 19th century, in the 20th century, in Orthodox writers, some of them even mentioned here as people who were pastors and archpastors and so forth, but their, their understanding of point of Christian life was so off the mark that at the end of the day, they ended up preaching that this same uh, sort of empty Christianity, empty faith, a faith that is not connected with God, a faith that is not a mystical communion with our Savior, a relationship, but rather a faith that a doctrine that debases faith to psychological exercises, basically, psychological level, not mystical level. What do I mean by psychological? It means that one, when we come to pray, we don't really have communion with God. We're simply thinking about God. When we read the Holy Scriptures, we're not really communing with God, but rather we are thinking and talking about God. It's all about but not in, not participation. And that is the bane of nominalism that took over is in, in, in Russia and in Greece as well, the whole, the theological schools. And the great contrast with all this is St. John of Kronstadt. Somebody, if we, you read his life, if you read his writings, shows the exact opposite to all this. To all this terrible, uh, unchristian understanding of our relationship with God, in contrast to all this, stands St. John of Kronstadt, who with his life and with his prayer and with his teaching shows us that everything in the church is connected with God. Everything in the church is participation in God. That we are not called simply to think about God, but to participate in him. We're not simply called to imitate Christ, but to live in Christ. And prayer is not a psychological exercise, but it's a mystical activity. And that reading the Holy Scriptures is not simply us trying to remember God, but it's actually <coughs> communicating with God. And of course, above all, the Holy Mysteries that holy mysteries are alive and work in us, all this St. John of Kroshnad in his My Life in Christ and his life demonstrates. And it's in a stark contrast to the theology of the seminaries, to the theology of the universities and academias. One of the uh, people that uh, highlight this contrast between St. John of Kroshnad and the, the prevailing uh, schools of the time is his father George Fodorovsky, who was a great theologian of last century, who is actually also one of the founders of our monastery. He was the original signer of the monastery, foundation of the monastery, whose theology, the book called Ways of Russian Theology, in the entry about St. John of Kronstadt, is just amazing. And he says that, you know, you put all this nominalist, moralizing, psychological, uh, philosophy that was presented as Christianity, right, on one side in the theological schools, and you take just one book, so, uh, My Life in Christ of St. John of Christ, and you see that they're two different worlds. They're absolutely two different worlds. One is about this, debasing Christianity to, to uh, simple rules and morals and, uh, and uh, basically making even prayer 
a mental, a psychological exercise rather than a mystical communion with God. And on the other hand, we have St. John of Kronstadt who sees communion with God in everything that he does in the church. The church is like a sponge. Everywhere you touch, grace flows out, like water flows out from, from a sponge, right? If we don't see this in the church, it means we have to revisit how, what is it that we understand by our way of life as Orthodox Christians. So the, uh, this book is a gem because it shows us this, right? And not only this book, but the other one. Can you give me my, my back, please? My life of Christ? Yeah. The, uh, my life in Christ, every entry is about that, is about telling us that Christianity is, is a religion of relationship with God and that everything that we do uh, in, our, in our life of, of piety and life of, as Orthodox Christians is about cultivating that uh, relationship. This is something that we have really have to delve into and the best way to delve into is reading a new edition of St. Uh, John's My Life in Christ. It's a beautiful edition, so I think we should all gather together uh, in, in, with an intent of acquiring one, at least, for our family. This, the old edition, as you, as you, as you read in, in the book, was published in, during the life of St. Uh, John. In the English language, it was uh, translated by Gulayev. And it had certain sort of um, mistranslations from Russian into English. But this was done by Jontonville just uh, a few oh, years back. Yes. So I think... Uh, the elder used to read it every day. This, uh, for, for the elder, uh, my life in Christ was uh, a gem. It was his uh, life and breath, and uh, I don't know how many times he read it, but his copy is probably uh, all but in tatters, <laughs> the one that, that, that he had. But, and you know why? Because we knew our elder. He was breathing with faith. He was ever, the, the life of the church was everything. For, and he found that you know, this is the, the real way. This is the, the orthodox way. And, uh, and especially to find this in somebody who lived a century ago, which is a, a miracle, yeah. right? So um, my life in Christ of St. John of Kronstadt is, should be our daily reading. And that's what we will, it, was, it will help us to learn this, that Christianity is about relationship with Christ. It's not about empty fulfillment of our goals, uh, spiritual goals. Uh, it's not about a spiritual version of us having a daily goal to, to, to become a, a better person this day. All that is good. But if it's just that, it means we're missing the mark. If it's not about us developing a relationship with our Christ, then it becomes a yoga. It becomes a, an ex mental exercise that will basically leave us as empty as we started. Right? That's the Look at it this way. In the, uh, in the West, the, one of the most foundational books of uh, spirituality is called, is, it was written by Thomas Akempis in, 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 in 14th century, is called Imitatio Christi, Imitation of Christ. Okay? It sounds good, but it's wrong. It's not imitation of Christ. It's life in Christ. And you see how, how little thing makes the difference. And what is the St. John's book called? My life in Christ. That's, how, that's the, in one word, the difference between 
the nominalistic, empty uh, uh, theology that doesn't see God in everything that he has revealed himself in the church, but rather sees sim simply just uh, psychological signs and, and uh, uh, tools for us to think about God, but not real connection with God. That with, uh, compared to this, where St. John sees God in everything that we do. And he's, base, he's basing his theology on the fathers. The, the same spirit that taught the fathers, the prophets and the holy fathers, that we have a living God, and we don't have a dead set of rules simply, but a living God, taught him as well. Of course, he read the fathers, but it was the spirit himself that was teaching him this. So, so that's why we see so much, so much similarity between him and, for example, another luminary that came in times of darkness to teach about living God, in his time, St. Simeon, the new theologian, who saw God everywhere, where he reveals himself. And that is why he was persecuted. That's why he was exiled from his monastery. That is why his contemporaries couldn't understand. Wait, 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 what do you mean? That you, see, you take communion and you feel God coming? And he said, yes, I do. Not that it was an emotional thing, but rather that in this life, saints reach that stage where they are able to experience God fully and see Christ in themselves. And that is what his contemporaries couldn't understand. He says, no, that is, you, you, this is unacceptable. And that is why he was persecuted throughout his life, St. Simeon, the new theologian, by so-called Orthodox hierarchs. There was a whole synod that they convened to expel him from, the, from Constantinople because he was the prophet of his time. He was the prophet who was telling people, our religion is not religion of a dead God, of dead rules, but our religion is the religion of true and living God, who wants, seeks a relationship with us. Uh, just as, for example, last Sunday, there was the reading of the gospel about the woman with the issue of blood. And it's very pertinent to see what our Savior, what our Savior says about this woman, about somebody touched me. Although there were many people around our Savior, he didn't say that about anybody of them, any one of them. Who did he say that about that somebody touched me? Somebody came with a living faith that this was a living God and he could heal him. About her, he did say, somebody touched me and took grace from me. Who can take grace from God against his will? But that's how he wants us to have that, the intensity of the relationship that he wants us to have with him, for us to snatch grace and blessings from him because of our livingness of our faith in a living God. And that's why he did she did receive that healing, right? So, uh, so, so the saints, and especially the one who we're talking about, St. John of Kronstadt, was that prophet of God who taught us and left to us this treasure. I, I think just as he was a treasure to his time when he was alive, by leaving this to us until the end of the days, uh, to, to read, it leaves us as the witness, as the testimony, as a great treasure for us to constantly be messing ourselves in this book and finding the ways of how to cultivate our relationship with God. So this is what I took away from <coughs> St. John of Kronstadt and I hope I, I was able to explain it and share it because uh, it, sometimes it's very difficult 
to share something that you feel very passionate about because it's so, uh, it grips you, and it really does. St. John of Cronstadt grips one and uh, sees that uh, how great is this treasure that we have, that this man who came in our day and age, who teach us the true, uh, as a true prophet, how to serve, how to have a relationship with our true God. Uh, uh, and, and how to have, re have this relationship here so that it continue in the age to come. So if we want that, if, if that's how we want to uh, look at our faith, and that's how we should want to look at our faith, not in, in, uh, uh, as a dead letter and not as a dead set of uh, concepts, but rather as a living faith uh, of in living God, we should have the reading of St. John of Kronstadt a daily, uh, a daily obedience. So um, that's what I wanted to uh, share with you. Now, I'll take questions. And it's not questions, discussion. So come on, let's start. Somebody um, say something, and <laughs> then we'll all tap in. Give us an example of what would be doing good and making yourself a better person, like an action that you're doing to, you know, like, let's say, charity. And what the difference would be to do that same action as, you know, having Christ in your life? I'll tell you what St. Maximus tells us about that. And St. Maximus, the confessor, uh, which very, I was going to say it, but I forgot. It's good you reminded me. He, tells, he explains to us what is the orthodox Christian way of looking at the commandments of Christ. We're given commandments to fulfill. So he explains what is the orthodox way of looking at commandments and what is looking at commandments as, as non-orthodox, as, as nominalist, right? Commandments, first thing we think, is a rule that we have to fulfill. And if we fulfill it, then we feel good about it and we get, give a, give a re get a reward or something like that. Not so. St. Maximus doesn't say anything like that. St. Maximus says that in the commandments, Christ himself dwells. Just look at this concept. Christ dwells in his commandments by his grace. So it's not a rule. It's a life-bringing activity, keeping of the commandment. Just as our Savior dwells in the altar, just as he dwells in the Holy Scriptures, that's why the gospel is always put on the Holy Altar, because our Savior, by His grace, dwells in, in, in the Holy Gospel, just as He dwells in the icons, just as He dwells in the... He dwells in His commandments, St. Maximus the Confessor says. So, when we fulfill commandment, a commandment, we're not simply just taking off a, a, a rule that we fulfilled. He says when we keep the commandment, any, about charity, about obedience, any commandment of Christ... We get hold of Christ, he says. By keeping the commandment, we enter into communion with Christ and get hold of him. That is the orthodox understanding of keeping of the commandment. It's getting hold of Christ in this fulfillment of this life-giving activity and entering into a communion with him. How different that is from how we usually understand the commandment. A rule that if you break, well, you know, bad for you. And, uh, and if, you, if you do fulfill it, then you get a candy, right? No, no, that's not the understanding. The commandments are Christ because he dwells in them. And when we keep a commandment, 
we get hold of him that, like that woman with the issue of blood, went and grabbed a savior at the hem, and a savior felt the grace coming out of, of him because of her faith. That's, hap that's what happens every time we keep a commandment. Every time we keep a command, we enter into a union with Christ. We get hold of him, and we become participants of, of him. That is how we should look at keeping of the commandments. And so that's, that's the answer. How it would be a, 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 a most, uh, an orthodox way of looking at it, and how it would be... No, the, what's the difference, like, like, like fit, well, we all do charity to our, you know, levels, but... It's know, difference is how you look at it. And I just explained how you should look at it. And it's not something you fulfill because it's a rule, but by fulfilling it, you come into communion with Christ. If, if, um, what, what Metropolitan said at the beginning, that the goal of the Christian life is the divinization, the acquiring of the Holy Spirit, which both St. John and St. Seraphim say, um, then what he's saying to you is that, it, and, and St. Seraphim makes it clear, he said, so how do you, he's asked by Matovalov in the conversation, Somewhat like you're asking, how do you, how do you participate in God? How do you acquire the Holy Spirit? And he says to him, well, he said the indispensable means are prayer, fasting, almsgiving, charity, and he goes on and on. But in reality, anything he says, St. Seraphim says, and St. John says, anything you do for Christ, assuming you're in the body of Christ, assuming you're mm -hmm. an Orthodox Christian, and that's an important prerequisite, mm -hmm. important condition, is that anything you do for Christ, like giving charity, allows you to do what the, what the elder said. It allows you to participate in Christ. And as St. Dionysius the Areopagite says, and St. Gregory Palamas says uniquely, we are Orthodox because we're, as Metropolitan just said, we're allowed, we're called to have a relationship with God and participate in God. You, you don't see that in nominalism. They don't talk about participating. They don't talk about acquiring the Holy Spirit. So to answer your, I mean, to elucidate mm -hmm. what, what the, the answer he already gave you, you're participating in Christ. You're entering, as he said, well, I really like what you just said about the commandments. I never, I yeah, never do powerful. that. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Because that's exactly what, it, so you read the commandments. You, you say your prayers to Christ and you read the commandments. And then you, and then of course you try to, and, and it's very you hard to, to do them, but, but, but in Christ you can do them. So then you acquire, you participate in the Holy Spirit. You, you do vigil. You, you acquire the Holy Spirit. You forgive somebody, particularly somebody who <laughs> irks you uh -huh. and continually the same thing. If you do it for Christ, and this is, I'm working on this right now. So, you know, and, and Father Isaac's helping me. And, and, and you, 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 well, no, no, I'm, I'm not it's confessing. Good. I'm it's just good. saying it's, good. it's, it's an example of what St. John of Kronstadt says, what St. Seraphim says. We're all, we're all in the same boat. I mean, yeah. I'm not unique. Yeah, exactly. All, all the same, one yeah. boat. Yeah. We don't have individual no. life safety. No, so, I mean, I'm not saying anything unique to me. But the, the point here is, is that you're, and I like your persistence, Nick, because you're going, well, wait a minute, how do I participate? And, and it's because I'm, I was raised the same way you were. You know, it's like you do this, you're told to do this, and it's funny, in the beginning of St. Uh, Seraphim's conversation with Nicholas Matololov, he, he, St. Nicholas, excuse me, uh, Nicholas is told by St. Seraphim, you've been asking this question all your life, and no one's given you the right answer about how to acquire, he said it's acquiring the Holy Spirit. That's the aim of the Christian life. He said they told you to give charity, do good things, etc. Fast, pray, but they, they, those are means, right? So right, the, means. The, They're the indispensable is, means. Yeah. is communion with God. Right. And the, by 
practicing them, the commandments, you, but, and looking at it like that, that by everything that you do that the church teaches you, you, you come to communion with God, and that's what you should be cultivating. That's why it's important doing them, and that's why we ha our life should be all revolving around it, is because by doing it, you, come, you cultivate that relationship with God. And without that relationship, there is no salvation. If we don't have personal relationship with God, cultivating and truly making our life to revolve around this relationship, then uh, that's it. we're not accomplishing. That's what, what we're called to accomplish. Just as a person who it says that he or she is in love and loves somebody, but the person that he loves is not the center of one's life, is lying, right? It's a lie. It means that he lives to himself, but only says that he has a relationship. If that's the, the, the fathers compare many times with the... Uh, uh, with the, uh, somebody who is in, in, in love, that, that he has a person that determines his life. And every word he says, every thought he says, that he has, every action that he takes is determined vis-a-vis -vis in relationship to this uh, person. That's, if we look at it like that, that that's how our life should be, but that person for us is Christ, then we are starting to understand and to walk and to do things, to keep the, to do things in the right way. But if that's not the case, if we understand that salvation is just a, a sort of a separate, autonomous, our own achieving something, right? Yes, by grace of God, we say, and all that, but it's all us achieving something, some goals in life, and some, you know, people have all these goals that they start the morning, and I have to do this, 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 and I have a, a, a pledge to, to do the, accomplish this, you see how different that is from somebody who does things, changes himself, and becomes a better person out of love for somebody, right? It's a whole different uh, concept, yeah, right? So, and you can notice it, like in the, in the eyes, in the disposition of that person, that he or she are really trying because they, for them this relationship is everything, right? As opposed to somebody who will say, well, I'll start tomorrow. My, my pledges for, for, for the year, right? It's, it's all different. They're both trying, but how different is the, the, both the spirit and accomplishment as well? Because something done for a, a love of another is far greater than something done because we just felt that it was good for us, right? It, it strikes me, though, that's why St. Paul says, don't be yoked to unbelievers, because, if what, because of what you just said mm -hmm. and the Father says true, if as the, you're giving to your spouse, you're giving, like you said, you're right. giving to Christ. But if, if that person is not one in Christ as an Orthodox Christian... It becomes difficult. It becomes almost impossible, but not impossible, yeah. But you are still in love, but you're not right. giving right. to Christ right. like you would right. if they were a believer. So that's... Um, does that answer? I think so, yeah. Okay, that's good. So it's like you love Christ and you want to follow his commandments because you love him more rather than just like following his commandments because you want to make the world better. Or Absolutely. That's, that's a good point, actually. Making a world better place is a good, a noble cause, but that's not the, the, the reason why we do things, right? We do things because out of love for Christ and out of... Uh, want, not wanting to grieve him, take it that way. Not wanting to grieve somebody you love, yeah, that's that's a paramount for somebody who really loves somebody else, right? 
So that's, that's how Christ should be. And that we see in the in life of St. John of Kronstadt was a person for whom Christ was present constantly. He served liturgy every day. He ministered the poor. He ministered. He did all these things. And in every step of his life, you can feel that in the man, is that he has Christ living in him. And he does think all, all this because he wants to have this intense relationship with Christ. Right? So that's how we should be looking at it. That's how we should be looking at our life as, as Christians, as how, why we keep commandments, why we fast, why we pray, why we do things, because it's a relationship. And by cultivating this relationship, this, we are saved. More questions? I'd like to, I don't know if I'll be able to explain myself, but I'll try. Let's try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... I've read that um, he was changing uh, in, during the liturgy. He would add um, mm -hmm. the uh, prayers. Yes, or from himself. himself. Yes. And um, I, I know from myself that I would hear somebody making up prayers and not going by the uh, uh -huh. book. Then I would, I would definitely mind it because uh -huh. we are not supposed to change right. things. Uh -huh. It's more like Protestant. Uh, making okay. your own prayers okay. and it, it made me see things from a different perspective knowing that he is a man of God right, right. and that he has God inside him uh -huh. that, yes it's acceptable uh -huh. um, but uh, as lay people as humans it's very difficult to relate to that in a, when you first hear it I, I agree uh, sometimes when, you first, when, when I first he heard a bit I had to think about it what it means that he was actually adding his own prayers in the divine liturgy, right? But, yes. yeah, c continue. Well, that, that, that I, it made me see things from the That's good, that's good, yes, um, yes. And um, I, your thoughts? I, my, okay, uh, I thought that it's a saint's boldness, boldness, right? Saints that's, boldness. I mean, uh, that's Tharos, right? Yes. Uh, the, the, the boldness because, that the saints have. But for a lay, for a lay person to... To be able to see him as a saint, to uh -huh. accept it. If you don't see him as a saint, well, if you, you well, uh, somebody who is not, not uh, well, it's that makes all the difference, right? Who is it that that is doing this, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a, a saint, obviously you understand that. Well, even if I don't uh, understand it first, right? It's it's something that is from God, right? That he's doing it because he has boldness with God, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's how we should look at it. And it's, he's not an exception. I mean, the liturgies that we have of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil the Great, they wrote those prayers, right? I mean, at first, the apostolic times, they had different prayers. And now we have, which are sort of seen in the liturgy of St. James, right? Which is much, much older. But we see how saints had such a, a boldness with God, right? That inspired by the uh, Holy Spirit, they would uh, add their own prayers. And that's, those are personal prayers, really, because it's a, somebody who is serving who is praying it. So it was the person who was serving, in this case, St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory the, the, the Great, who, uh, with abundance, of the heart mouth speakers, right? So abundance of the spirit in them, they wrote down those prayers, right? But obviously they didn't change, they added. Right. That's, that's the key. Because the change is something to take away and make it uh, imperfect, right? 
but they didn't. The, the uh, Eucharistic canon, which is the, the, uh, the main part of the liturgy, those prayers are for right from the gospel. Right, the, the the actual words of the institution and the and the uh, actual blessing or so forth, those nobody ever touched them. Right, although they vary. You see, uh, Saint Basil has one version of it, uh, uh, and, and Saint John Chrysostom another. But the, the that part is is never touched. It's never, if anything, you can add. And we all add when we pray, for example, in in the liturgy, the priest. We don't do it out loud, but we all have our own compunction of of adding something from your own heart, in your heart, okay. before, before uh, yes, yeah, so it's, but he did it with much more boldness, right, of actually doing it out loud and so forth. Uh, so it's, it, that, is, that is what the saints have that boldness, but we know that uh, is, is, uh, St. John, I mean, was, had such boldness that he would even uh, share what his prayers were, right, right, other priests, in, in your heart, you, you pray to your, your own way, obviously never subtracting the prayers, but adding something to, to bring you into more compunction, into more uh, communion, uh, so that you're prepared for that awesome moment of, of changing of, of the uh, bread and, uh, and wine into the body and blood of our Saviour. Right? Question about the public confession? Yes. Exactly. So I was just thinking. Is he the only one who had this... Uh... Well, initially, the 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the um, church in the early times had that practice right. that it was the the Christians would confess uh, publicly and their sins. Together simultaneously, or like one by one in front of them. Yeah, we don't know exactly how, Similar but things. but uh, everybody to. <laughs> I believe in Acts of Saints it said that, that members of the uh, Christian community were confessing sins one to two. To, to, yes, to, so that it was all to each, other. each other. So that's why. But it became, uh, it became sort of more uh, discreet uh, because uh, people can get scandalized, right? So that was, it was a pastoral. No, 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 no. No, not, not because of that. Because of, to, to be discreet out of, especially when the church was growing and many people came to the church, that in early uh, first, two, second, uh, third, three centuries, um, those kind of people wouldn't be as easily accepted into the church. What I mean, that when St. Constantine became uh, Christian, Many people, uh, nobles and so forth, they said, "Well, you know, the, the king is, emperor, is is Christian, so we have to join the the, the church now." So um, it became fashionable, <laughs> right, to become be Christian. Whilst before the emperors were uh, Christian, it was nobody would go become a Christian. What was the reason, right? I mean, it was persecuted, it was it was insulted. All things were so there was no incentive to be Christian. So the people that were there. They were of fiery faith and, and uh, all, all prepared and, and uh, much more, I would say, of, of higher quality. <laughs> right? The confession was uh, set up in the early years of Christianity or it just, uh, just uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. one second, uh, you know that uh, the, the forerunner uh, of the Baptist, he has repent, right? But is repentance a confession as the same? Absolutely. No, he was, they, were, they were repenting. They were confessing their sins uh, to St. John the Baptist. So it's something that is, that's part of the church throughout, uh, right, uh, to confess. And the same about what we, when we say repentance, it means one confesses, right, uh, publicly or to someone uh, present or if there's nobody to God, right. But 
the, the need for the, the witness is that so that we are given direction afterwards, right? How to deal with the, the, the thing that we committed. But at any rate, uh, but St. John had himself, um, he was hesitating, we, we see uh, in this, whether to reestablish this ancient practice was pleasing to God, but, and it was. There was a miracle that happened uh, during the confession. It's in the life, and he said, well, that shows that God is well pleased, that I should, I should have this a practice and, uh, as, uh, so that nobody has uh, thoughts about it. Right? Public confession. But the, the genius, the holy boldness and the genius was that he had everybody literally shouted out so no one could hear. There was such a loud noise that no one could hear the other person. I don't, I don't quite recall what it was, but I remember that that was a sign to him that, that he said, well, it, it, it's a consolation that I see from here, from this, that God is well-pleasing in this. I will find it afterwards. But there was something that happened during the... Yeah. Okay. Well, of course, it's easy now to say, well, it was done by the saint, it was come from God. Of course, at the time when he was actually living and uh, serving, it was a big temptation for many people. Of course it was. But, it the, was. Reason, but the yeah. reason possibly is that uh, uh, we should remember what our Lord said, where two or three of you will, will gather together in my name, then I'll be among you. And another thing, what we, uh, what priests announce every time do you, uh, do you, uh, during the liturgy, let us love one another, that we, with one mind we may we may confess. The problem is, those thoughts about how it can be, why it's so, it's when people don't uh, have this desire to be one mind, in one love, and to confess together. The things that people are coming to the church not to approach God, not to ask for forgiveness, to beg for, for forgiveness, and to, to receive forgiveness for the sins. If your purpose to come to the church to, to be saved, to avoid condemnation, and the only way is to repent your sins, to confess them, and you don't care how much pain, what barriers are on your way, you just go, you have. Otherwise, it's death. And people don't care what others will think. On other cup of weights is what those people will think about me, that I'm not so good, that I'm not so nice, that I'm not so pious, or of course I'm against this public confession. Those two things are balancing together. And St. Philaret, Metropolitan of New York, the new confessor, uh, he left several uh, wonderful sermons devoted to St. John. And he emphasized that same way as St. John could see in hearts and minds of everybody who was approaching him, and during this public confession, when everybody is screaming, crying, he still was pointing, repent, repent, you have to repent. And even unto those people who were mm -hmm. saying aloud, aloud, but it was not his part just to make everybody produce noise. <laughs> he cared that people will repent and will receive forgiveness after they will actually repent. And once this uh, possibility to be in one mind, in one heart, then those things are taken off. It will Unfortunately, it never was possibly in the history of the church and possibly it never would be that actually everyone who is coming to the church 
has such state of mind, has such desire. But once again, we should think about ourselves and about Christ. Not about public opinion, political correctness, and uh, other things. To, to take it even further, he, he wasn't even <coughs> concerned, St. John was, was not concerned when a man who God revealed to him was going to die. He said, I, I, I didn't fast before. He said, "Come, you're coming to liturgy. You're going to take communion. And he go, I didn't, I didn't fast. I'm not supposed to. He said, you're going to take communion. Because he knew he was going to die very shortly thereafter. So, there you go. But the... Yes, about the confession, aren't them two different concepts? The individual conception, uh, confession, and the confession we are called. Yeah, I have to go to plus master. Thank you. With one mind. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And with one mind. Well, it's yeah. Different words. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. confession yeah. of faith. Yeah, that's correct. Which, which yeah. are, we are called to do in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. To sure. confess. Yes, that, that's the face, yes. not to confess our sins. Not to, not, it's not about I, I understand. No, 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 no. But Father was referring that we, we uh, should be of one mind, right? And yeah, the one. It's a different confession. Uh, sure, it, it, it is. Uh, I agree. Uh, but it doesn't take away from the validity of, of the point that he was making. Uh, but. Uh, about the confession, this in life of Saint, in writings of Saint John Climacus, the the latter, there, there is an incident that shows us that it was uh, practiced even uh, in the later centuries, especially if there was need, particular need for that uh, person, and uh, uh, to to do it publicly, not for him only, but for the rest of of the people. So there was a case of one man who had come to the monastery who. Uh, was wanted to become a monk, and he had been a brigand. He had been a, in He had uh, led a terrible life, and he confessed all this to the abbot of the monastery. Uh, and and the abbot, seeing that he was uh, somebody who could take uh, flak, uh, told him, "Will you confess this to the whole congregation?" But he said, and he says, "I can. I I'm I'm not ashamed because of his repentance. If I if you were to send me to confess it in the middle of the city of Alexandria, he said, and that's what he did. He uh, during the liturgy he had the men brought in, and he made it a bit more dramatic with chains and and uh, one of the deacons beating him and then you know, uh, uh, yeah." And he said, and, and, and he said uh, when he was were bringing him in, he said, stop, you're not worthy to come in. And the man fall, fell down because he really heard like a really loud voice telling him not to come. And they brought him in and he confessed everything. And he said it was, it was so, such a heartfelt confession and so, so many terrible sins, right, that, that uh, it was a spectacle to behold. And... Uh, St. John uh, of the Ladder asks this abbot, uh, why did you do this of, of making? He says, for two reasons. First, because that public confession entirely cleansed the man. And I can attest to this because one of the brethren saw a, a radiant youth sit standing next to him and erasing from a, from a tab some, all his sins. And the second, he says, because I know there are some in the brotherhood who haven't confessed all their sins. 
So it is to induce them to, 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 to confess. So for two reasons, and there are many reasons. So yes, what Father says is actually it's true. I mean, for, for the time, that time, and if in our times as well, it would be something shocking, right? If, if we, but that's why we have to always take, take a, always be careful about what we say and what we express in, in what we find when we find something like that happening because many saints did very extraordinary and eccentric things sometimes that do not fit in the, the whole concept of the fool for Christ, for example, right? The uh, St. Theophil of, of, uh, of Kiev, in his life, he did things during the services that was scandalizing, scandalizing, right? But he did it for a reason, a reason that... Uh, only God knows, right? But he, he did things that were scandalizing. Therefore, that is when we have to be careful not to uh, go out and put um, our, our judgment and, uh, over, over the actions of, of, of people that easily, right? Because we don't know what will turn out. Why is it that the person is, is doing? So in this case, when you know that somebody is, is an experienced confessor, somebody who has a, a gifts, evident gifts of the Holy Spirit, yes, it could be something strange to behold, but let's, let's always have uh, that, that, uh, that restrain our, our, our judgment over the things that we, uh, we see done, right? You started the discussion by saying that uh, our call as Christians become God by grace. Yes. And that uh, Russia and Greece have become so foreign to the concept that we have become, in a way, a hybrid Protestant uh -huh. And it strikes me that if I return and say that phrase to we, as a Christian Orthodox, I'm trying to become God by grace, and I'm saying that to the Greeks I know, uh -huh. they look at them called the cat, and they say, it, and you one second away before calling the mental hospital, <laughs> because it has become so foreign right. in this culture. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but in the end, when reading something like that, when referring to the saints of that period, or we know that there are saints, for people who live a daily life, it, it is a concept that is at the same foreign in some capacity, at the same time, there is an attraction, uh -huh. because there is real hope. It's not the hope we get because if you're good, something can happen. But there is a practicality that. Uh, 
we, we ask God to help us out and to avoid distractions, basically. Because today's society, the way we live, uh -huh. really, is full of distractions, basically. Uh, so, I, I want to appreciate to have the, the letters and the reading. <coughs> At the same time, I'm having a lot of difficulty, I wouldn't say to connect, but I'm having the, 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 the uh, I'm not looking for a solution, right? I mean, uh -huh. it's about everything. But you have this, uh, you feel so far away. You read this life and you feel that, wow, it's not that, that I have to take 10 steps, now I have to take Sure, but if only if you look at it uh, that way, that, that how extraordinary things he did. But if you look at the uh, uh, things that really relate to us, right? And there are many, many things that relate to us. You will see how how close you can feel because uh, Saint John, for example, for him he beheld Christ fully in the liturgy, right? And that's that's some the concept that you know for him to truly experience Christ at every liturgy. Yes, that is so removed from our mind and our fallen uh, state and, and where we are. But at the same time, we know that that was the same liturgy that we just celebrated uh, today, that we have the occasion to participate every Sunday. So it's far because of how he looked at liturgy and how he experienced it, but it's very close because we are given the same uh, occasion. We are given the same opportunity. We are given the same prayers, same uh, icons, same... So it's at the same... That is why it's very close, right? And especially when you hear you know, him talking about the feast days and the uh, canon of this and uh, feast day and the conducting of that feast day and uh, the, which part of the liturgy he did what, it's almost like, wow, wow, I know, I know, that's exactly, I'm trying, I will try to connect that way next feast day that comes uh, because I heard that St. John, so it gives you okay, many occasions in, in his life to actually connect far more than uh, to feel uh, distant, right? Because that is the, the benefit of the saints that are of our age, that there's so much commonality in practice, right? Because yes, liturgy was celebrated always, but sometimes we don't have the details of the, uh, such details about how saints did what. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, there is a space, space and time uh, thing that, that uh, affects us, right? But in, in this case, um, it, it's, the, the, there are so many details and so many fundamental things, right, that we have common in common, uh, in practical way, of course, we have in common common God, right, and common church and common everything. But on practical level, right, that we uh, when we read how he celebrated divine liturgy and what was his, uh, uh, what were his thoughts at this point and at this point, or how he uh, fasted or how he celebrated this feast day or what he did when he, somebody asked him for charity. All those things are so uh, you know so much so detailed and so close to us that one can, you know, really feel connected. So I would concentrate on that, not how well he did things, right? But he did well on things that we have access to, right? The same things that we have access to, not things that sort of we are oblivious to and we don't know. So I would, I would look at it that way, right? Yeah. Jürgen is back to the confession, and then you made me ask you another question. Okay. Forgive me, that will be the second but to the subject of common confession or public confession, 
Yes? At least me, I understand, doesn't scandalize me. Because St. John practiced the public confession, yes, common confession, by practicing it, he taught us a very important things to practice in our life, Christian life, specifically not to judge. Mm-hmm. Why should I let myself scandalized by, some, by else, someone else's deeds or acts or whatever? I could not judge. That's mm-hmm. my mission, not to judge. True. So True. it's nothing wrong with God. So it's beneficial to everyone. Yes. Right? And benefit not that uh, well if he did this, you better off stay away of that. <laughs> this, this would be a second yes. one. Yes. Less important. But the most important is that we are stuck and told not to judge. Mm-hmm. You refrain to your own plate. Yes, you don't judge. And the second one, you said that Saint John has God in him and all these things which are true. But isn't it that Savior, it is in the Holy Liturgy, regardless the state of mind or the state of purity of the performing priest? Savior Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the Holy Liturgy, it's always present. Of course, of course, absolutely. But we're not... In the same level, doesn't go by the the sanctity of the performers. No, no. No, it's... The, the, uh, the state of the priest does not affect the mysteries themselves, but it does affect the priest himself. Yes. Right? So that's yeah. what we're talking about, that uh, he, where he was as a celebrant, we're not talking about the, uh, any difference in the gifts themselves. The, the gifts are the same, yeah. right? We're talking about how he perceived them. And that's not only about the celebrant, about everybody. The gifts yeah. that we receive are the same. But it's depending on us whether those gifts will be to sanctification, to salvation, deification, or to condemnation, right? And that is something, a good point to remember, that no matter how sinful the priest, that no matter how, what he has fallen into, does, no, I'm talking about even fallen into terrible sins, he, that does not affect if he's celebrating. What does affect is if he's a heretic. That's the difference, okay? That, that, that should be clear. The moral state of the priest, for example, only affects him. He gets condemned. He gets judged that he dared to uh, celebrate. But having celebrate, that does not affect the people. Some, who are... some people, but there was a village or somewhere place that the priest was, you know, the people would run to the place where the priest was the most sinful. <laughs> because they knew that where the sin is, they the grace abounds, right? That's funny, yeah. yeah. Right, so that it's a very popular way of saying what we just said, right? Like folkloric people in simple ways. But that, that's just to finalize, that, that's important to understand that the, the sinfulness of the priest when he's celebrating. It's, it, it, he gets judged for if he celebrates without uh, due preparation or if he, he has an epidemion or something. But the celebration itself of the mysteries does not get affected. So one, to say that, oh, I can't receive from the hands of a sinful priest, that's a sin to say that. Right? But what does affect is that if, if the priest or his bishop are preaching heresy. That, that's because God cannot be there where falsehood is being preached about him. Right? Okay, Kiki, you wanted to say? No, I just want to say, I'm glad that they, the, the eulogy uh, by Metropolitan Anthony, who was uh-huh. give that, I can't remember his name, I think Anthony, 
um, that gave the eulogy right after, you know, we finished the end of his life and he reposes in the, the funeral and then we go into the eulogy. And I loved the eulogy because, it was funny because I'm like, okay, I finished now, I don't have to read anymore. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through and, and read a little bit more. And I love the eulogy because it really brought together everything that I had kind of been thinking. Into one, absolutely. It tied everything together. That was actually, I, I, re I read that last night, right? <coughs> the whole, the eulogy. And I said, I should have started from here. And I made so many notes, notes during that. Uh, it, 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 has, it says everything. It was Father, it wasn't a metric, it was Father um, a philosopher Ornatsky. Oh, he okay. did the eulogy at, 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 the, at the end. When the, and it's, it's fantastic. It's, it, every, he, the man really understood. Right, Saint John and his work and his person and uh, everything. Right, so. By the way, do you know that there actually uh, should, at least in theory, exist a recorded voice of Saint John? Yeah, yeah. Father, uh, our Father Alexander, who was a monk at the monastery, he had lived in Japan for the longest. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he he told me about that that uh, they, they, during the many visits, there was Anglicans visited him sometimes and asked him about spiritual things. On one occasion, they recorded his voice. And, no, of Kronstadt. Kronstadt, Kronstadt. The, the voice? No, of Shanghai. That's of St. John of Shanghai. So I'm talking about St. John of Kronstadt. Yeah. The gramophone. 19, he died in 1908. Uh, anyways, so yeah, um, the, the, they recorded his voice, and, and uh, we've been trying to locate where could it be. Even when I was a, a student in England, I visited uh, you know the British Library, the the Lambeth Library. They said nowhere. They don't. I, co I couldn't find uh, anywhere. But somewhere it must be. Somewhere in the recesses of the of one of those uh, libraries. Go to Moscow library. No, no. <laughs> Moscow, they destroyed everything about St. John of Kronstadt. They no. did, really? Huh? Yeah. They did? Well, uh, his, his uh, relics are not known. <laughs> his relics, they think either um, uh, father, what was his name, who was his, his um, niece's husband, who was, who was taking care of the, of the uh, Yuanitsky convent, uh, that either he translated them w without anybody knowing, and buried them somewhere, then it's not known. Or they're still under the very place where he was buried, but unmarked and, and so, yeah. Anyway, we, we have two particles from his, from his cassock at the monastery, two pieces from his cassock. Well, it's, it's like framed. Yeah. Framed, yeah. It's the white background. It's a bit like a picture frame. Yes, yes. And you bring them out. Yes. The question about the Ioniti. Oh, the Jonites. Yeah. I don't know if it's in this book, but there's other books about him. There is, it's mentioned. Yeah, yeah and uh, what is that like? I mean, obviously they worshipped him, they understood that he was a saint. And no, 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 it wasn't just that. They, they were saying that he was Christ himself. Oh, I see. That had come the second time, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they were crazy, obviously, but I mean, St. John was performing so many miracles. I mean, people just being healed by his shadow even, right? Yeah. That, uh, you know, I guess the devil used that to 
basically suggest suggest to huh? Well, no, there, there was there was one. There, there are several occasions they tried to hurt him. That that was that was the. No, no, no. Those those were the uh, the uh, anarchists or, or yeah, some sort of. They tried to kill him because he was. He was very healthy in general before. Yes. He was such an amazing, healthy person. Uh -huh. He ate so very little, right. so regularly. Right. But he would go through the uh, ice, right? Every yes, day yes. From Kronstadt to Petersburg, so yeah. He was like 70 years old or something. He died when he was 80, exactly. 80. Right? 80. Yes. But he was he born was in 1829 uh, and died in uh, uh, 1909. So 80 years, yeah. And so this Ioanniti were people who basically got carried away about his sanctity and with demonic suggestion they uh, proclaimed him to be uh, Christ himself. So they, they would try to bite him so that to, to drink his blood, right? That there was the real communion, they said, right? Things like that. But anyways, uh, so... But his miracles were so... And that's why I said that his was a prophetic ministry because... Uh, it was like given as a gift and the, the miracle working and his preaching and it was supposed to attract people. He understood that that was his uh, cross, that was his calling, that he was supposed to make an impression on a people that uh, the, of, of the, the God is alive and he's a living God, right? I, I have a question about this regard. I know that he prayed for many Lutherans and other mm -hmm. and they got miracles, healing and everything, right? So he received this letter. And during liturgy, uh, in general, right, we're not supposed to pray <coughs> during the liturgy, during the pessary, you know, as a priest, mm -hmm. for the other denominations or right. other people. Like, how did he do that? Well, Why did he I, I, I don't think he would commemorate uh, the names of the people. But he would say, uh, maybe I'm mistaken, yeah. that he would get all these letters on the altar or near the altar. And he says, you don't know that. So that he would just put them on top of the yeah. gifts and that's it. So that's not actually commemorating. In the liturgy, we pray for everybody. Yes. So at the end of the consecration, after the consecration, the Eucharistic canon, we pray for the uh, every single thing, the government, the world, and ah, so, so forth. We so can, we as lay people can do this, like pray for anybody, right? Yes, but that's not commemorating in the in the uh, actual body and blood of our Savior. That's actually giving thanks to God after this great miracle of, of uh, uh, changing uh, of, of the uh, of Eucharist, of changing uh, bread and uh, wine into body and, and blood. And you ask him after this great miracle to uh, save the world and to for, for everybody who is in prisons and in the mines and, and in exile. No, you pray for every, everybody. I mean, if you pray for government, obviously that, that yeah. government can be this, can be that, right? So uh, that's how he would, uh, he, he, he would pray in that sense, right? But not in terms of taking out the particle for somebody who was not a member of the church. Bible, you pray for the Christians in Absolutely, the only the members of the church. Yes, yes. Okay living and that and you also commemorate the saints right? so you put them together with the saints starting with the mother of God but actually the elder had met a family in Greece that had a miracle by St. John performed 
They, they, he was, I, I, the sisters should know the details of it. The elder told me about it, but I don't remember the details. He was visiting a family, and they had a portrait of St. John of Kronstadt in Greece. So he was surprised. Well, how do you know? He, well, he said in the, there was a sickness in the family, so they had heard about there was this great, great miracle worker. In, uh, they're talking about their parents, right? Yeah, the book mentions uh, that he went to Greece. Uh, no, this is a different, okay, uh, okay. Uh, the, the different account. And they sent a telegram or asked a, a, a something, somebody to deliver, and it happened. As, as soon as uh, he prayed, they had the, the miracle of, of healing. And I think the telegrams. The telegrams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's why he was a prophet, prophet in our times. And I, I said prophet not only to wake us up, but wake us up before that great calamity that happened, the revolution and the godlessness and everything. And for our days, this is his prophetic gift to us, the life in Christ, his diary. Father he wasn't a confessor. He went, he, they asked him to come and pray over him. He wasn't, strictly speaking, his father confessor. But when he... I was he, surprised that Tsar Nikos did not Oh, did, well... I don't have. I didn't. I don't have. He 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 had time to be anybody's uh, confessor, especially, on how, so, I mean, of of the emperor, right? I think he. Everybody understood that he was the father confessor of all Russia. <laughs> so, so I, I don't think that. Yes, he was invited, and, and the baptism of of Grand Duchess Olga, and. Um, mm -hmm. There were a couple connections. Yes. But anyway, so let's take away that from St. John, his life and his writings, that we have to cultivate a living relationship with our living God. And if that's not what we are doing, if that doesn't feel what we are doing, then we have to revisit it constantly and try to look at it that way. And it will help us to look at it that way, reading, reading his, his writings, his diary, because it's the most... Uh, private, in, uh, most uh, intimate moments of when he was praying and when he was uh, uh, thinking about God, connecting and being in communion with him, that's when he would write that. He would uh, take any kind of paper and uh, jot down whatever came at that moment. So they had to collect napkins and uh, little uh, the paper uh, uh, clippings from the back of a, of a newspaper maybe where he had jotted something down and that's how they, they, they uh, com basically compiled his, his diary, right? So it was my during life his lifetime when they first published? No, I don't think it was during, I think it was after. The, what he was published during his lifetime were his sermons, sermons or se several volumes of his sermons. He wrote a lot, actually, and his sermons are short and to the point. Very, very, and he wasn't trying to be eloquent, ever. He was very, uh, his word was, Direct and with power, right? Short, direct, and with power. So, so let's take this away from uh, from uh, having discussed a bit the life of uh, the God-bearing Father John of Kronstadt to cultivate our relationship with God and remember that in the church th th we are not simply reminded about God. The holy things do not simply remind us uh, what we know about God. Doesn't simply remind about God, their windows, their, their mystical uh, uh, connection with God himself. It, and that makes all the difference. That makes, 
Because if we come to the church with understanding that here I can truly be in communion with God, and not only church, by what we take out from the church in our homes, in our daily lives, whatever we do is not simply about God, but connecting with God through every means that he has given us, right? Then our life will be transfigured. Every, uh, Every time we make sign of the cross will be a joy to us because we know it's not simply remembering the cross but connecting, communing with the power of the cross. Every time we kiss an icon it's not reminding us about a feast but we are participating in the feast. Every time we celebrate a feast it's not a memorial, something happened a long time ago but it's actually transcending time and space and being there, right? Present at the feast. So that's how we should look at the church. That's how we should look uh, at, at our life as also Orthodox Christians and not in this nominalist way that simply uh, debases this mystical experience of God to level of psychology, psychology and, and uh, mental exercises, level of yoga, basically, right? We never, in, in nominalism, you don't leave the, the vacuum of your brain to be actually break out and be in communion with God. You, it's all happening in, in your isola- isolated mind. And that's why uh, the end result of nominalism is atheism, actually. It, actually, to, uh, this is not from me, this is some, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the history of genealogy of ideas in many writers contemporary trace the birth of modern atheism in the West to nominalism. Because look at it this way. If uh, what William of Ockham was saying that everything that we know about God, right, it has nothing to do in reality with the divine. It's simply our knowledge, and it's not connected with the divine reality, right? That's what nominalist preaches. Then the, what happens next is that if, that's, if whatever you know about God is not connected in reality with him, how on earth do you know that there is God? Because that was actually, and that's why the universities in, in the late Middle Ages became, they started to, to be more concentrated, not on uh, uh, the theology, but on sciences. Because in science, at least you know, in reality, you can see, right? And that's why they became all, so universities that were all monastery run, and they were all monks, became, that is, the, the teachers, they all became the, the, the foundations of great research uh, places. And that's where modern universities come from. It's all due to nominalism, because it cuts away our relationship with God. It uh, debases what should be mystical to uh, something that is in, uh, just mental, right? Uh, uh, just the working of our brain. And we call them divine studies. Well, yeah, we, d- we don't, but they do. They call themselves yeah. but th- So the, uh, this uh, birth of modern uh, uh, atheism, is not directly, but is a, is one step after another, it traces its origin to the, the, the nominalism, because it severs our connection with God. And if you're not sure about anything about God, then the, the next step is that you're not sure if there is God, right? And uh, that's <coughs> the conclusion they came to, right? So we don't know about God, so let's just concentrate on, on, on knowing what's about the plants and animals and uh, stars and uh, uh, things like that, right? And they did, with religious zeal. That's why science, <laughs> science progressed in the West, because of the, the zeal that they had to put in prayer, they put <laughs> in sciences, right? Yeah. But anyways. Do we know anything, historical facts, 
when the author of this biography he died left, in left, he died and he's buried in France. Yes. How he arrived from with the immigration. Now from Yugoslavia to France. Almost everybody arrived through Crimea and Yugoslavia and afterwards they dispersed, right? But when did he leave Russia? It's probably in the in the introduction. It's probably in the introduction. So. I won't know more than the introduction says. Because the introduction says that he left after the revolution and he left in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was not after the revolution. After either he didn't leave after the revolution, but later on Yugoslavia or Yugoslavia existed after the First World War. It was called Yugoslavia. After First World War, yes. not after Second? No, after the, the First Second World War didn't happen to Serbia, not to Yugoslavia. The Kingdom of Yugoslavia existed after the First World War. It was formed after the First World War. Yugoslavia, not Kingdom of Serbia? No, no. Not called Kingdom no. of Serbia and had Croatia and Montenegro? Cornelia, I just told you, it was called Yugoslavia, and that's why they refer to Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, it's still, like, he's the descendant of the princess, he lives in Monaco, prince of Yugoslavia. It was called the kingdom of the southern Slavs, Yugoslavia, southern Slavs, right? Well, um, when did Sir John Kassad pass away? 1909. Yeah, nine years before the revolution, eight years before the revolution. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Let's let's chant the Pandakion to to the saint. Yes. It's on page. It's on page three four two. Thou who from infancy was shown by God, chosen by God, and in childhood didst miraculously receive from Him the gift of learning, and was gloriously called to the priesthood in a vision during sleep, thou didst prove to be a wonderful shepherd of the Church of Christ, O Father John, namesake of grace, pray to Christ our God that we all be within the kingdom of the heavens. Through the prayers of our Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. So, what, what did we decide about St. Paul?